I'm Jason Lewis. I'm Flora Gladwin. And I'm Thomas Mills. Welcome to Climate Optimus. As a group of concerned citizens, we're on a journey to explore climate solutions and ways that each of us can make a difference. As a nonprofit organization, it's donations from listeners that enables us to educate and empower people to become climate advocates. So whether you're a longtime listener or just discovered us and like what you hear, consider a donation that aligns with that value. Donating is easy. Just head over to our website, climateoptimist.co and click the donate button. Great point, Thomas. And if you're not ready yet to commit to being a donor, you know, tell your friends and family who are concerned about climate change about us. Have them subscribe or, you know, you can always take their phone and subscribe for them. I'm sure they'll <laughs> thank you later. Uh, finally, you know, we want to hear from you. If you've taken action lately to help the climate, have ideas for new topics or, or questions, drop us a note on our website or on social media. Absolutely. We look forward to hearing from you. So transitioning to this week's topic, between the energy to operate them and the materials to construct them, buildings represent roughly 40% of global carbon emissions. You heard that right, 40%. In addition, the type and location of the built environment impacts transportation emissions as well. Denser cities are more walkable, bikeable, and have better mass transit, reducing the need for car travel. So today, we're going to revisit the topic of green building, exploring some areas we haven't before, as well as recent developments in the sector. But before we dive in, let's talk about this week's reason for hope. Thanks, Flora. The International Energy Agency just released their annual electricity report. Renewables are forecast to provide over one-third of total electricity generation by early 2025, which will mean that it's overtaking coal for the first time. The share of renewables is forecast to grow from 30% in 2023 to 37% in 2026, driven largely in part to the cheap solar PV that's now available. There is still a lot of work to do, but it is proof that we are moving in the right direction. And I went back and looked recently at some uh, data from our own grid here in Australia. And on the eastern seaboard of Australia, back in 2017, we produced 820 grams of carbon dioxide emissions for every kilowatt hour of electricity. And that held this at the same level for 2017, 2018, 2019, and then all of a sudden started plummeting. And now we're, we've gone from 820 to 660 grams last year in 2023. So if we can maintain this rate of acceleration, I think we still have a good chance of hitting our 82% uh, CO2 emission reduction target for electricity generation in Australia by 2030. From my perspective, I mean, the key is going to be as we're adding all these renewables that we're not forgetting about the importance of accelerating our investments into the grid and into storage, but definitely exciting to see these sorts of numbers. Yeah. And that's become the limiting factor here, right? Like the, the big problem now is there is a lot of PV on the solar PV on the East coast of Australia, and we don't have enough uh, battery storage in the middle of the day. So they're having to derate wind turbines and shut off people's solar systems. And I don't really want that to happen. Like we should be maximizing the use and using every kilowatt hour of available renewable energy because we're still dependent on fossil fuel in the evenings. So the more we can get battery storage in now, the better. Well, with that, let's get into today's guest, who's an expert in the green building space. John Pendorf is an associate principal in Perkins Will's Washington, D.C. office with a concentration on commercial and higher education markets. 
He also serves on the Firmwide Innovation Committee and co-directs the Resilience Task Force. He's been a representative to the American Institute of Architects Strategic Council, as well as other roles, and has been featured in various publications, including Metropolis, The Washington Post, and Urban Land Magazine. John, welcome to Climate Optimus. It's great to be here. Thanks. So to start you off, when it comes to efforts to address climate change, what makes you hopeful? I have to say that it's often hard to be an optimist when you talk about climate. (laughs) I try very hard not to be a pessimist, and maybe I'm more of a realist than anything else. But I think when I think about what makes me hopeful, it's the generations coming through education right now. They're learning more about climate and natural processes than I certainly did in school. And they seem to care more about the degradation of the planet. They're asking more questions and they're supporting more companies that share their own values. My daughter is taking chemistry in high school this year, and she chose to do a paper on carbon as emissions from buildings. Now, I have no idea where she got that idea from, but (laughs) I think that would not have been a topic even to talk about when I was in high school. So I think we're looking at generations that have Uh, the climate change topic already on their radar. And we won't have to spend a lot of time educating them in the way we've had to educate ourselves and current generations in the workforce today about the why and the how. So I think and I hope solutions are going to come quicker. Yeah, and it seems like, to your point about the education piece, if there's already that awareness and it's much easier for them to connect the dots on you know, the viability solutions or, hey, this thing over here will have this downstream impact. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think they also have so much more access to data right now. It's so easy for them to look up a company and the company's values and see what they're doing about climate change and carbon reduction and whether or not that's where they want to spend their money on clothes or memberships or music or what have you. Their collective buying power definitely has the the potential to change business for sure. So let's, I guess let's dive into topic at hand, kind of big picture, how much of global greenhouse gas emissions are sort of linked to buildings? And then, you know, how does that shift at all in terms of numbers in the US? Sure. Well, it depends a little bit on the source, but trends in the data show that globally between 40 and 42% of emissions are linked to construction in the built environment. This includes both operational emissions and embodied carbons of the materials that we use to construct the buildings. In the United States, fossil fuel burning attributed to residential and commercial buildings accounts for roughly 29% of total U.S. greenhouse gas emissions. Improvements in energy efficiency have led to emissions reductions in these sectors um, since the peak in 2005, but we still have a long way to go. Yeah, I can imagine a a built environment that was in place well before we were taking these sort of measures. So you mentioned operational and and embodied. So there's sort of this, obviously the construction phase, people can envision their emissions there. And then there's the subsequent, you know, years of operation that the building is in place. And those are kind of your two primary buckets. Correct. Yeah, we've we've got sort of looking at, you know, when we look at think about operational carbon, um, it's it's really everything that makes the building tick. So fuel is is used to power the building, and that can be oil, natural gas, coal, that can be electricity, 
that can be a, a series of renewables that can happen on site or off site. And a lot of people think, well, you know, we'll just make the the energy source at the building cleaner, and 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 we'll solve the problems. And and some of that is true, but we've got so many buildings that are dependent on our energy grids right now, and the energy grids are are powered by usually a combination of of fuels. So you really have to go back, not just from the building, but you have to go back to the energy grid to the power. Uh, to the power company and, and, and supplier and say, well, what is, what is actually creating this energy? And right. so you really can sort of start to open your eyes in terms of not just how much power are we taking on site, but even if we reduce that on site, the power that we're using, what is the fuel that's creating that? Um, and that's often step one in understanding how do we get to something called um, carbon neutrality or climate neutrality is, is really getting to that point where we understand where all of our energy is coming from and we can either replace it with something cleaner or we can offset it until that cleaner replacement is found. So how are emissions from transportation linked to buildings? Like what, where does that fit into the mix knowing that the kind of buildings you're building impact you know, transportation options? In some ways, it's less of a question about density and sprawl related to buildings and more about what fuel sources are used for the energy powering the buildings, as well as how the materials are moved to a project site. When we think about how people move to a project site day to day, we know that they have the option of getting into a car and driving, which is, especially as an individual, is probably one of the most polluting. There's also a lot of cleaner solutions like walking, bicycling, and using public transit. Um, while these are all good options and we should continue to promote them, and density certainly does promote those, they aren't always considered when looking at the building's carbon footprint. We usually try to think about what's physically there and how it's being powered. So one of the ways we, we start to think about that is, can we source materials locally or within a certain radius, you know, from our project site or our building, because that will decrease its carbon footprint through its transit. When we talk about carbon in building materials, uh, we talk about embodied carbon being the carbon number represented from the, the material's entire lifespan. And that includes everything from extraction from the ground, whether that's mining or growing, to moving that material to a factory or processing plant, creating the product, moving it to the building, installing it, the lifespan of the product, and then removing it if the building is demolished. The transit itself is actually a fairly small amount of the total carbon, embodied carbon for a, a product. So, it sounds like it's complicated in terms of figuring out, you know, the 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 embodied carbon material. I'm guessing th materials, uh, especially for a bigger building like concrete and steel, are probably more carbon intensive. We've obviously talked on this podcast about, you know, green steel and and low emission car or uh, low emission concrete. Excuse me. Are those things still kind of in the theoretical phases, or you know, if you're trying to build a building tomorrow, are you able to to try to start sourcing things? So the good news is that there is more of a market shift to offering these as options. They may not be available in every market yet, but we are seeing options for reducing the carbon footprint of concrete 
through the use of different um, additives in the concrete. Certainly steel and even an aluminum, even though we're not seeing aluminum obviously as a full building structure, it's still a building material, highly recyclable, highly recycled. So in terms of reducing the overall footprint, those are still very viable options for a lower carbon building. We're seeing right now approximately half of a building's embodied carbon footprint is related to the building structure itself. So the footings and foundations, the columns, the joists, you know, everything that makes the building stand up essentially. And those are those heavy hitters. That's concrete, that's steel. One other viable option, which I know we're exploring pretty fervently here uh, in the Mid-Atlantic is the use of, of heavy timber construction. Uh, we are not known necessarily for our timber and forestry in this area, but whether that is true you know, large format timbers or whether that's engineered lumber, which is, you know, large pieces that are kind of glued together. Wood is a great natural renewable resource. It's a carbon sink. It actually holds on to carbon because of what trees do through uh, transpiration and photosynthesis. So wood is is sort of re-emerging as, an, as another viable option. And I know that there are places in the United States and abroad that are even testing it for more of a high-rise uh, option to, to see how that works um, when you get above, you know, five, six, seven stories. But there are good options out there and you have to kind of weigh them against what are all the other things that we want the building to do. So what are kind of macro level some of the other solutions to uh, addressing emissions from kind of the new construction space? So it sounds like material selection, transportation, you know, how stuff gets to the site. Are there other other things that, that folks need to think about to really create a, you know, low climate impact building? Sure. Well, I think, again, we kind of look at it from both the operational uh, standpoint and the embodied carbon standpoint. From the operational standpoint, especially when you're talking about new construction, we often look for ways to reduce energy consumption on a building to really minimize the footprint from that standpoint. So let's start by designing the most conserving building we can do. And we do that sometimes with very simple, very passive solutions. Things like understanding the building's orientation in relation to the sun, in relation to maybe existing or, or planned tree canopy for shade, prevailing winds also for breezes. We look at lower energy intensive building systems when we start to think about how the building powered and heated. So whether that's you know geothermal wells that use the constant temperature below the earth's surface to, to heat or cool the building. And then we also look at, as I mentioned earlier, on-site energy generation. So, you know, photovoltaics on the roof for solar energy, but we're also seeing projects that could benefit from, from wind energy, from localized wind patterns. Um, we had a project uh, in the DC area, unfortunately it wasn't one of ours, but we had a project that actually took advantage of the constant heat in sewer water because Wastewater oh, is at a higher temperature consistently and used that as a heat exchanger. We're also seeing some parts of the construction industry take back their products when the building or an interior space is demolished. We refer to this as take back programs. Some people call it the circular economy, but really these products are being taken back for recycling or upcycling 
So that's exciting to hear. So I think if I'm understanding correctly, first and foremost, you know, you're talking about material selection, you're talking about designing a building that is efficient, roughly speaking, I mean, you've got the embodied carbon sort of, you know, in the initial structure, how does that compare kind of to the operational carbon? I assume that depends too on the design, but. We see typically it's, it's been tracking almost 50, 50. And that's from data. I think that takes us through about 2018, 2019. Um, it does, I, I, the answer to almost every question I've found in architecture is it depends because it right. depends on, on what the design is and it depends on how the users are using it. What's interesting too is that buildings have, have a lifespan. Some buildings we keep around for a lot longer. So that embodied carbon, it's there in that building, it never goes away, but it's not like it's constantly being replaced. When we knock sure. down a building and get rid of it and put a new building in its place, we're essentially starting again with all that embodied carbon. And what's interesting in commercial buildings is you build a building and it, it represents a certain amount of embodied carbon. If you've got many tenants in that commercial building and they've got seven year leases, 10 year leases, and then they leave, there's a lot of turnover in the finishes and in the lighting and in the furniture of those existing spaces within the building such that if that building lasts for 70, 80 years, the carbon represented by all of those interior build-outs ends up being more than the building itself. Oh, interesting. So we're seeing that not only are we, do we have to be cognizant of the structure, which initially is about 50% of that embodied carbon, but as we move forward in that building's lifespan, every time it goes through a renovation, that embodied carbon just gets greater and greater, especially if you're pulling things out, putting them in a landfill, or, or pulling things out and, 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 and not recycling them or not upcycling them. So we're, we're talking, I think, about it here a little bit, but you know, new construction, I feel like we've kind of covered the bases. What about you know, remodeling and, and renovating structures? What kind of solutions are sort of available there Obviously, you know, we're, we're building new stock all the time, but we have all this existing stock that's, that's out there. Yeah. The cliche, the old cliche with, with sustainability is the greenest building is the one that's already built. And I feel like a broken record when I say it, but it's, it's true. Existing buildings in some way are, I wouldn't say the golden ticket to lowering emissions, but it's a great start in terms of what we can, what we can save and what we can salvage and reuse. They're already built. The, um, the American Institute of Architects estimates that the United States has 6 million existing non-residential buildings. And that means that's roughly over 90 billion square feet of usable space. That's a lot of space that could be repurposed instead of a building being replaced. The challenge is that about half of that is 40 years old or more. So those are buildings that might still have great bones, shall we say, if the structure of a building is like its skeleton, it may be having challenges with its respiratory system or its circulatory system. So we need to look at modernizing these buildings for energy efficient efficiency and updating the systems that might need replacement. If we think about what I said earlier, that we're, you know, we're looking at a structure of a new building being about 50% of its embodied carbon, imagine keeping all of that. So now you're starting with a, mi a minimum of 50% less or thereabouts. That's a great way to start reducing the carbon footprint of the project. And that goes for any 
whether it's a residential, you know, single family residential or the tallest of, of commercial office buildings. Are there, you know, incentives out there, or increasing number of incentives to, to encourage reuse of, of materials? I guess I'm wondering like, what's, you know, what's happening out there to, um, to encourage that type of behavior, right? The reuse versus, you know, getting rid of. So some of this comes down to local municipalities, um, because as much as we often look at uh, large government, big government to, to make sweeping, you know, changes or legislation or, or mandates, a lot of where the rubber hits the road is in the cities and counties that adopt building codes, zoning codes, and, and other rules and regulations that govern how we build our buildings and how we design our buildings. And there are certainly tax incentives out there for retaining existing property, especially if it is deemed historic. So some of it is very localized and as it probably should be, because those are the entities that are responsible for permitting and approving projects. Interesting. So it sounds like it, it you've probably got jurisdictions out there that are more progressive and thinking ahead and then, you know, in turn putting rules and regulations in place around, you know, the built environment that are encouraging that sort of thing, which leads me to kind of another question. I mean, are there, you know, we're talking here about all the details that go into a building and how to make it efficient. Are there examples of, you know, cities or regions that you're aware of that are doing a good job at this, right? Encouraging that, you know, um, kind of climate positive building that we need to have to be able to reduce the, the sector's emissions. Yeah. And I think, you know, Maybe as a, as a side note, we've seen a lot of political turmoil in the United States over the past six or eight years or so. And there was a lot of concern that with uh, changes at the federal level that we were going to see the aggressive nature of climate positive legislation go away. And I think to my point earlier, we actually saw it transition from the federal government more to the local government. We saw states we saw governors and mayors really stepping up and saying, we need to promote this locally. We need to take this seriously. So we've got cities like my own. I live in Washington, D.C. We have a fairly aggressive climate adaptation plan. We have almost over a decade ago now, they introduced the, the D.C. Green Code, which mandated uh, certain levels of sustainable design for projects over a certain number of square feet or if it was city funded. We also have the green area ratio, which is a zoning ordinance that uh, lets you choose how you deal with stormwater management on your site. Certainly, we see some more aggressive legislation and, and requirements on the coasts, especially when it relates to things like sea level rise and, and the protection of, of spaces. You know, City of Vancouver is, is pretty aggressive with requiring some level of resilience planning. Uh, on all of their projects. I also think that programs like the LEED rating system through the U.S. Green Building Council have really done a lot to push the market, um, sometimes when it wasn't ready to be pushed. And I know that there is a new version of that rating system coming out in the next year and a half that will speak to embodied carbon and climate positive design. So I think that will also start to have an impact on how different cities, counties, and states might view requirements for projects in the future. 
Well, it's good to hear that this stuff has continued to move forward, you know, kind of uh, despite what might be going on at a federal level, that it, that it, you know, has momentum. I mean, where, where do you see the opportunity? Like if, you know, if you were, let's say in charge of uh, a city, right? What are the kinds of things that maybe are just sort of on the edge of, you know, folks' knowledge that, that could be incorporated into zoning and, and building regulations that would help? Are there, are there big opportunities out there that haven't yet been kind of adopted? I think that building codes and ordinances can really be either carrot or stick. Um, okay. And I would prefer it to be a carrot. So I would err on the side of saying it would be great to see more zoning codes in particular allow for either greater building density greater heights, something like that, for encouraging climate positive design. City of Seattle, uh, I know, was doing away with parking requirements completely in certain portions of the downtown area, even for large buildings, because they wanted to encourage people to take uh, greener methods of transit. So I think there's opportunity there to encourage the design of more climate positive structures by using building ordinances as incentive as opposed to it being punitive or feeling like you have to drag people kicking and screaming. Right. I also think that there's probably a groundswell of people being more and more savvy about this who aren't in the design and construction industry. So end users and occupants are going to start asking for this more. Why aren't we designing a climate positive building? Why are we using fossil fuels? So I'm hoping that in the future, not only will building codes reward that climate positive design, but I also hope that we're going to see a lot more end users and the people actually paying for these buildings asking for it or demanding it. Interesting. Well, I hadn't thought about it as, you know, the sort of end consumers, like let's say a condo owner, homeowner driving some of that demand. You know, I guess I'm wondering as we're talking about all this and somebody might be listening and thinking that this is really interesting but you know, how do I get involved in terms of being able to affect change in the building space if I'm you know, not an architect or, or an engineer? What would you suggest to folks if they want to be part of you know, helping their community become greener from a, a built perspective? I think there's a lot you can do as an individual. And some of it is going to feel like you're going to have to start at home. So understanding it in your, in your home and at that scale is going to help you understand it at a greater scale. So whether it's using programmable thermostats or upgrading insulation in your home, even adding solar power to your roof if it's viable to do so, these are all going to help you lower your personal carbon emissions from your, your home. I do think on a larger scale, even especially if you're not directly involved in the design and construction of buildings in your area, a few things come to mind. The first is a theme we hear so often in climate design and climate justice. It's to advocate. Local jurisdictions are where the rubber meets the road. So asking your city or your county governments for more aggressive energy conservation requirements and advocating for the local grid to move to cleaner sources are two things that are going to have a wider impact than just one house or one neighborhood. Sure. I think the second is to educate yourself where you feel like you need to learn more and then speak up. If you work in a commercial office building or any sort of large professional space, whether that's higher education or healthcare, 
ask about how the building is, is powered. Ask about what your company's doing to commit to carbon reduction. And the last thing I would say is to vote with your wallet. Probably one of the easiest things to do is to support companies that are working towards cleaner energy, that do support take back programs to recycle or repurpose their goods. In the era of big data, it's really easy to find this information and it's really easy to make a choice to say, I'm gonna support a certain segment of the economy that aligns with my goals. Well, John, exciting to hear that there's so many different opportunities for folks to, to plug in and we'll definitely, you know, kind of call those out in our, our call to action. Thanks for coming on to, to the show and, and sharing uh, your wealth of expertise, you know, helping us all be a little bit smarter when it comes to, to green building and, you know, hopefully people go out and, and start paying more attention to, to what's around them. Thanks for having me. It's been great. So, you know, I definitely enjoyed the discussion with John and, you know, talking about green building is, is always something that I'm into. And, you know, for me, I really liked his kind of simplified formula for, you know, creating a green building. You kind of start by designing it to be as efficient as possible. You know, the less energy it consumes, regardless of the energy is a positive thing, you know, making sure it's all electric. So getting rid of, you know, gas heating and then, you know, using green materials you know, reused, recycled, et cetera. So I thought it cemented my understanding of certain topics and, you know, learned some new things. What about you, Flora? Yeah, I agree. I mean, a lot of this was really new for me and I definitely learned a lot. I think I also resonated with John's focus on circularity and the fact that in the future, we're really going to be having to narrow in on robust recycling programs to try to encourage responsible product and waste management. Um, right. And that's going to involve like he talked about, you know, getting governments on board. So what I stumbled across in my research was mostly a focus on providing more incentives to construction companies. And I also found that there's a lot of pretty great tech in the area, which I thought was really interesting, which, you know, extends from recycled steel to rammed earth. And even in, you know, hopefully not so far a future affordable photovoltaic glass, which would be really cool. And yeah, I also found a lot of sources that talked about the potential for construction companies to use digital product passports, which would allow them to trace the life cycle of a product. So definitely a lot of cool and interesting tech uh, in the field. Yeah, I think I think you're right. Getting getting those incentives in place is key because with all these technologies, regardless of how good they are, it's like, how do we get them to scale up? Well, how about you, Thomas? What did you think? Oh, Jason, I think this yet again highlights the need to put a price on carbon. Once you have a price on carbon, you will look at using alternate building materials rather than just steel and concrete. You'll look at building structures that last longer because it costs so much to build it in the first place that you're going to build a structure so that if you can double the operational life, you've now doubled the amount of time you can amortize the cost of the building over. So I think that price on carbon will encourage us to build more efficient buildings and buildings that use locally sourced materials and are not so dependent upon the global supply chain. Yeah. I mean, it's hard not to think of a price on carbon as kind of one of our silver bullets. I mean, clearly it's not going to solve all of climate change, but when you start looking at all these different you know, facets of our economy that we need to decarbonize, a price on carbon is, is the first place you have to start. 
So completely agree there. You know, in all the research that I did, despite all the work that we really clearly have to do, I did end up finding a lot of reasons for optimism. And I'm curious if either of you stumbled upon anything similar. Yeah, same. I think, you know, it's clear that we're not where we need to be yet. <laughs> um, so I can't overstate that. But yeah, there was a lot of success stories out there, even at this last uh, climate conference in Dubai, which, you know, some may have been, you know, less than excited about. Um, there was this buildings breakthrough initiative that was led by France and Morocco. The goal really being to take, you know, net zero emission buildings and climate resilient buildings and take them from kind of the fringe to normal by 2030. And they were able to get, I think, 27 nations to sign up so far, so roughly half of global emissions, um, which is exciting. The key with anything that comes out of you know these climate conferences is that you got to back it up with regulation. Otherwise, it's just <laughs> aspirational. But I was excited to see some momentum building there. Yeah, I read about the Buildings Breakthrough Initiative too, and I'm definitely excited to see where it goes. My kind of reason for optimism in all this research comes from a huge opportunity that we have for retrofitting rather than rebuilding, which, you know, as John talked about, is a more carbon intensive process in our cities. So during the pandemic, about 988 million square feet of office real estate was available in the U.S., which at the time was about 30 percent of the real estate market. And wow. this problem isn't one. I know, right? It's, it's striking. And this problem isn't one that's gone away. Now, post-pandemic, U.S. office occupancy rates are still at about half of pre-pandemic levels. And in terms of housing, we're short 5.5 to 6.8 million homes in the U.S. So that unused space presents, you know, a really important chance to address green building as well as equity issues because sustainable retrofitting and affordable housing often go hand in hand with things like proximity to public transit, you know, use of LEDs, energy star appliances, different things to save both energy and money, and more. And there's actually a history of places pulling this off well. Uh, Philadelphia and New York City both have had successful tax abatement programs that were put in place to encourage office conversions. You know, that's very cool, Flora. I think, you know, it's something that I know I've been aware of out there, and I know that, you know, taking a commercial space and turning it into residential isn't a trivial thing, but yeah. you're right. You know, like we're short on housing. That's causing a housing crisis. We've got, you know, this need for more green buildings. And so why don't you retrofit what you've got? So makes a ton of sense to me. Mm -hmm. Thomas, any additional thoughts from your end? Oh, well, Jason, you, you know, I think a lot about building efficiency. Um, so it did trigger a few thoughts. Um, one of which was, you know, at the outset, if you are going to build a building, make sure that you are b building it with a more flexible uh, design criteria so that you can look at that structure and go, right, well, it might be used as a hospital today, but maybe a nursing home in the future or maybe apartments um, in 20 years after that as the demographic changes in that particular area. Um, the other thing that always comes to my mind is when you look back historically at energy efficiency standards, they've never been adequate, right? So um, I, I can think of very few cases where we've gone overboard with efficiency standards at the outset. So I think making sure that whenever we do implement buildings or implement new building standards, especially in developing nations, that we go for the highest level of efficiency standards wherever possible. 
And the big driver for that is I, I do quite a bit of work with um, you know, retroactive insulation and adding wall insulation after the fact is at least three times more expensive than adding that same level of insulation when you when you're building the building initially so making sure that we get that right out of the gate i think is is very important um, the other thing i do think about quite a bit these days when i do energy audits is ensuring accessibility of the services within the building um, so often i will find that it's very difficult to modify the pipe work or run new electrical infrastructure. And because of that, if that becomes very costly later on in the life of the building, people are more likely to scrap that building rather than say, well, let's go and do a refit of this building and you know extend its life by another 50 years. Yeah, all great points, Thomas. I, I especially like your point about designing for flexibility and you know, I'm sure John as an architect thinks about those sort of things, but yeah, you, you don't want to, you know, box yourself into a building for a very specific purpose, knowing that to your point, you know, cities, cities change. And so you might need it for commercial one day and then, you know, 20 years down the road, it makes more sense as, as residential. Yeah. And I I think along the lines of making those buildings flexible in nature and being able to adapt to future needs, I think it's also important to remember that our future extreme environmental conditions are going to be changing as well. Um, I mean, I take a couple of cases in the last few years here in Australia where we had power lines fall over because they were built to a certain gust standard um, from 30, 40 years ago, whereas the gust loading now, because the the environment is becoming supercharged due to climate change, is, is very different to what it was back then. So now things have to be built to a better standard. And I think similarly with you know, residential and commercial buildings, we need to be considering things such as the size of hailstones. You know, should we be going with a thicker roofing material so that we don't have to strip the roof off? You know, forest fire cases, making sure that we've got adequate protections. Have we put gutter guard on the house to ensure that we're reducing the risk of embers getting blown into the building and, and so forth? Um, doing those things at the outset is typically a lot more cost effective than trying to do them on the back end. Yeah, very true. And I think, you know, climate change, while, you know, a lot of the focus is where it should be on the on the mitigation of emissions and how we do that with our buildings, you're calling out another good point, which is that we need to be thinking about the resilience part too, because, you know, the, the world that we're living in is changing. And so that means conditions are changing as well. You know, I, I think the other thing that's worth calling out is that the the solutions when it comes to, you know, having a, a climate-friendly built environment are a little bit different right now when you're talking about the the developed world versus the developing world. You know, the the Europe's, the US, Australia's, most of our, you know, buildings are existing buildings. So the focus really ought to be on how do we put in place stringent, you know, performance standards to ensure we're converting those existing buildings in, into more efficient ones, moving away from natural gas. It's not to say that the new buildings aren't important, but the bulk of our buildings are already here. Where when you look at the developing world, let's say, you know, like Africa, you know, 70% of the building stock in Africa in 2040 has yet to be built. And so for those nations, it's going to be absolutely critical that they get robust, you know, energy codes integrated into their building code. And so they're designing and building efficient buildings up front and don't create the problem that, that we have. And there's some positive momentum in that direction. You've got 
you know, I think four countries in Africa that now have mandated energy code in their in their building code. And you got four four more that are sort of in development, but definitely need more of a focus there. Is that we all we want all nations in the world when they're building a new building to be building it as efficient as possible and and obviously, you know, without fossil fuels. Yeah. And I, I think that's where the importance of tying World Bank funding and things like that to items such as energy efficiency um, or renewable energy requirements in those nations rather than just letting it go carte blanche because otherwise developers will always go for the cheapest solution out of the gate rather than the cheapest from a long-term perspective for those nations and for the environment. You know, I think this all sort of leads to the question of like, well, how do we as individuals affect change when it comes to, you know, creating a more climate-friendly built environment? And this week, we've got two options for you to get involved. The first is to take a look at your city and see if they have building performance standards in place. You know, those are the standards that require existing building owners over time to make their buildings more energy efficient and to move away from natural gas, you know, to to electricity for things like heat. If you don't happen to have, you know, building performance standards in your city, send an email to your city council and tell them to adopt one. Yeah. And for our second option, if you've got an older home, it's worth it to sign up for a home energy audit or encourage your friends to do so. Energy audits provide a prioritized list of areas to tackle to improve your home's efficiency. So it's both a great chance to save money and also to live greener. Very true. Well, I think that's all for today. But before we leave off, we wanted to say that this year we plan on taking some time to start highlighting listener feedback. So send us your questions, suggestions, or tell us what you've done recently to help the climate. You can contact us through our website or social media. And when you reach out, please include your first name and where you're from. Thanks, Flora. Well, that's a wrap for this week's episode. Thanks, as always, for, for tuning in. Our next episode will be dropping on Tuesday, February 13th. Climate Optimus is made possible by Climate Stewards Collective. You can find us on the web at climateoptimist.co. And don't forget to follow us on social at Climate Optimist Podcast.